Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Full Time Whistle podcast, bringing you all the latest news after the Full Time Whistle blows. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by former Sky Sports news reporter and respected football agent Dougie Keane, who gives an excellent insight into his fascinating career in sport. So without further ado, here's the Full Time Whistle podcast with Dougie Keane. First and foremost, Dougie, can you give the viewers a bit of background on how your love of football first began? Well, firstly, Jay, it's an honour and privilege to be uh, asked to come on as a guest on the show. So uh, thanks very much for having me on. Yeah, my love affair with football began from a very, very, very early age, um, from as far back as I can remember. My father was a professional footballer. He was a schoolboy at Tottenham Hotspur and then went to Wolves under Stan Cullis, which is, uh, I think, the greatest manager of all time for Wolves in their history. Um, He was at Wolves um, and... Yeah, he had a good career in the game and he ended up at Barnet. Um, and Barnet was the first game that I actually ever went to see, but I have such vague memories. I think I must have honestly been three or four at the time. And, and the first proper game I can remember was being taken to Highbury and uh, to watch Arsenal be Manchester United. And I became an Arsenal fan ever since. I just thought, Highbury was a magical place and I just absolutely thought, wow, this is an incredible place and just loved the game and, and yeah, my love of Arsenal began at a very early age too. Um, my father uh, went on to work with Barry Fry, working for Barry Fry at Birmingham City and, uh, and then Peterborough United. So I was very, very, very lucky um, family-wise. I've always had... I've always had an amazing family and I've still got an amazing family and they've always supported uh, sport in general in my life and, and particularly football. But just 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 some of the memories I had as a kid were just ridiculous, to be honest, and like, I don't think would ever happen today. So when my dad was working at Birmingham City, we, we grew up in Bedfordshire and close to Barry Fry's house, so a lot of the journeys up to Birmingham I'd be in Barry's car and he'd be going 110, 20 miles an hour up, up the motorway. I don't think he'll thank me for saying that, but um, no, it's just incredible. And I'd listen to him on his, his on his phone on loudspeaker, and I think later on that maybe helped me with negotiations because even at 11 or 12, I would I would get to hear incredible things and just learn. And, and I think he's sometimes not given enough credit. If you look at the history now of Peterborough United. Um, the transfers that they've made in the last 10 years and the profit they've made on transfers is, would, be, would be second to none. Um, but yeah, so just incredible moments. I remember at Birmingham City, Birmingham City needed to get promoted on the last day, day of the season away at Huddersfield. And but both teams were going for promotion. I think Birmingham were top and Huddersfield were second. And the game was at the then McAlpine Stadium. And just incredible being in the changing room um, at half time playing on the pitch Barry's son Adam is the same age as me and then the two of us were sat on the dugout and just this this just wouldn't happen now you wouldn't be allowed to but we were sat on the dugout and at half time we're having a kick around and kicking the ball into the goal with the Birmingham fans in the way and just, just incredible memories and in pre-seasons I would get to go up and, and, and stay for a few days or a week and, and at 11 or 12 years of age just incredible and, and there were some big characters in the Birmingham changing room like Ricky Otto, Kevin Francis, Paul Tate 
It's just that they're a fantastic team and a real bunch of characters. And I think from a very, very early age, I was used to being in a football environment. What was your earliest involvement in sport and football professionally? I know you mentioned Barry Fry. Would you also say he's a big influence? Yeah, my, my, my father's been, and my, my whole family have been good friends with the Fry family since day one, since my day one anyway. And yeah, just, just in my teenage years, then Barry went obviously from Birmingham. He, he gained great success at Birmingham City. They won the auto windscreen shield trophy, which is like the Football League trophy now. And um, there was 50,000 Birmingham fans at the old Wembley against Carlisle United. So these are like fantastic, fantastic memories growing up um, as an 11, 12, 13-year-old. He, he then went on to Peterborough. Um, and, and that was fantastic because my dad was doing a lot of the scouting work. So I had a real encyclopedic knowledge of, of the game. And because I'd go on Saturdays and Tuesday nights and I'd, I'd get back at one or two o'clock in the morning when there were big distances for my dad to, to travel and we'd be sat in the car. And yeah, as a kid, I knew I could tell you about every player, every club, background, history, what type of player they were, et cetera, et cetera. So I think the word nowadays, obsessed, gets overused, but I, I, I was obsessed. Um, and then I was lucky enough to sign Borough when I was 16 um, and had a couple of years at Steve and we had some big characters as managers, uh, Paul Fairclough, um, who, was, who was very, very good. Uh, obviously, Graham Wesley, <laughs> different character. Um, but at 16, 17, 18, that was fantastic. And I actually um, had the opportunity to play with uh, George Boyd, who obviously went on to have an amazing career. Um, but from, from my perspective, I think I look back at my time at playing football with just mixed emotions, to be honest. Like, I'm, I'm very lucky. I feel super grateful that I've managed to do a lot of amazing things, um, and, and I'm super grateful for that. But I had a lot of injury problems at Stevenage, um, and I had a lot of problems with my legs and had operations on my legs, et cetera, et cetera. So I went from Stevenage, I got released from Stevenage, and then went to Team Bath. And I don't know how many of you viewers will remember Team Bath, but Team Bath was fantastic setups. It was all players that had been released at a young age and we all went to play for Team Bath, which were in the lower divisions in the like Southern Division. We kept getting promoted, 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 promoted. Um, but alongside that, we'd study sports science at Bath University. And I, I don't know how many of you guys listening have been to Bath, but it's just a fantastic place to be. And they'd opened a sports training village, which back at that time would have been a better training ground and training facility than most Premier League clubs, which, which sounds crazy to say, but they had a lot of international athletes training there. Um, and it was just amazing to rub shoulders and they'd have the England rugby team training there. Uh, Colin Jackson, top, top, top athletes, like all the top swimmers because they had an Olympic sized swimming pool. And just the environment of being there was just phenomenal. But sadly, injuries continued to dog me and, and no one could diagnose the problem. And, and later on, um, it turned out that all the problems were coming from my spine. So from a mental health element, I think I always look back at my time as a footballer and just maybe what if, although I've loved my life ever since and I've been very lucky and very fortunate, I think I'm not sure to this day if I've still ever 100% gotten over it because I've seen 
George went on to have an amazing career. Even at Bath, we had incredible players like George Friend, who obviously went on to play in the Premier League as, as well. Matt Taylor, who's the ex-City manager. He was uh, captain at Charlton in his playing days. He went from Bath to, to Charlton. So we had some incredible players. And yeah, although I'm, I feel, again, very, very lucky, I think, I think it's taken me some time and maybe not completely over the fact that I never made it as a professional footballer as much as I would have wanted to because that, that was a dream from a very, very early age. I know a lot of people growing up want to grow up and be a professional footballer. I think most most lads in the United Kingdom would be lying if they said they didn't want to be a professional footballer. And it's important it's really interesting that you mentioned mental health because I think it's really important to kind of kind of speak about that now. And obviously with your role as an agent, I imagine mental health plays a big part when when thinking about players too. And obviously how how did you manage to recover and and obviously work your way into working in football from this setback? Well, to, to be honest, Jay, and I haven't actually divulged this, I actually went and spoke to um, a therapist about it. And not, not just football. I had, um, when, when I was at Bath, I had a friend of mine that was I was very close to at school. He he committed suicide, and and it was completely unexpected. No one knew that he was struggling. Um, I had a girlfriend that was self harming at the time, and all four of my grandparents died in close proximity. Um, and this was all all in my time. Pretty much all that all of it happened whilst my time at Team Bath, and I think I learned an awful lot to help to, to be where I am today and be able to help my players because I learned a lot about that time. I learned about, I was a little bit disappointed at maybe, but Paul Tisdale was our coach at Team Bath and he was fantastic at coach, but I don't think the coaching staff and management maybe took enough of the human element away from what was going on in my personal life. And, and I, I had injuries and it was almost like Dougie's injured. So we've got to focus on our squad where I was still a boy. I know I was 18 or 19, but I was still a boy. And um, I just felt, I think I learned a lot from that and how I would want to be in my own life and how I'd want to be with people day to day during that period. So although it was a very, very dark period, I think I learned a lot during that time. And I think that stood me in good stead now, today where I am today, to be able to help my players. Um, I love that my players are very good at football, that's fantastic. But I can promise you that it's more important to me how they are as human beings. And I'm lucky that the guys that I look after and represent now, I think are genuinely all fantastic. I love being around them. I think they're kind, they're caring, they want to give back. They understand that they're in a maybe a fortunate position and privileged position. Um, but I really focus on that and, and I give them honest feedback and if I think I, if I think that they can be better and I think that they can improve in certain areas in how they live their lives then I, I'm super 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 honest with them and yeah I just I just feel very fortunate that I've got a good group of human beings that I get to represent because you hear a lot of sometimes some stories negative stories about players etc but I, I, I've been very fortunate that I've, I've really got a good crop of people. 
Absolutely, and we'll, we'll get into more of the uh, agent side later in the podcast, but what was your pathway to becoming a producer, a reporter for Sky Sports? Because obviously Sky Sports are undoubtedly one of the, the biggest sport providers for news in the world. Yeah, I was, I was very, very lucky again. And um, so, so my time at Bath came to an end and I, I was having problems to, to even walk at this time. I remember um, I was dating a girl in Barcelona and I went to the old Olympic Stadium to watch Espanyol from Barcelona and my seats were at the back of the stand. And I know this sounds crazy as a 21-year-old, um, but the seats were at the back of the stadium, but I, I couldn't, I was struggling to walk up the steps to the end, to the back of the stand. And so, so, so my physical health was struggling and, and I was fortunate that I met a guy called Paul Ankers and he managed to eventually diagnose the problem, whereas I'd seen so-called experts and they'd, I'd get operated on my legs, but Paul was fantastic and found that the problem became from the bottom of my spine. So but that was after I'd left Team Bath and after I started working at Sky Sports. So I left, I left Bath um, and ever since I was a child, I think Sky Sports News came on TV when I was around, yeah, again, I think around 12 years of age. And I said to my parents at the time, I said, wow, if I don't make it as a footballer, I need to work here. I just, I just absolutely loved everything about the channel. I thought it was fantastic. I would watch religiously like a kid growing up. Um, I'd watch it all through the night. And it was only later on that when I, when I started working at Sky that I realised that between um, midnight and 6, 7 a.m., it's a recorded one-hour loop. And I think, oh, this is very, very similar and to the last hour. And, I, and sometimes when I was um, not, not struggling to sleep as a kid growing up, I'd watch like back-to-back hours through the night on Sky Sports News. So, yeah, it's fair to say the second the channel came on, I thought, wow, if I don't become a footballer, this is where I've got to work. Um, and... I was very, very fortunate that when I left Bath, um, I managed to obtain a week's work experience within Sky Sports. And I thought, wow, this is my chance. I haven't been able to progress as a professional footballer due to injury, et cetera, et cetera. But this is the next best thing in my eyes. Um, This is going to be a fantastic opportunity. And I made sure that although it was only five days, it was one week's work experience. Although it was only five days, I was going to maximise every single minute so, and I'm not ashamed to say this, I think in this country, as a general rule, some people are afraid to really go for what they want and actually vocalise what they want. But I made sure in that week at Sky Sports, I made sure that I was in an hour early. I'd finish an hour later than I needed to. Um, I wore a suit every day. Um, I managed to speak to everyone, I'd communicate with everyone, I'd introduce myself to everyone. And obviously Sky Sports is a huge organisation. And during the work experience, they, they did really well at Sky because you'd work in different departments. You'd work on the football departments, you'd get to see everyone there. You'd work on boxing department, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you'd get to meet pretty much everyone within that week. And I made sure that I introduced myself because I wanted to leave an impression. But although Sky Sports was incredible. My dream was to be in Sky Sports News. Um, and, and that's what I set my targets on. So I remember the last day of work experience, Sky Sports News was in a different building. And I thought, right, I'm going to go and find the big boss of Sky Sports News and introduce myself. And yeah, it was a guy called Andy Cairns who was there for a long time and, and did, did an amazing job for the channel. But I, I went and introduced myself to him and said, oh, hi, I'm Dougie, and told him a little bit about myself and just said, how fortunate I felt to have had a week's work experience, but I really, really love the opportunity to have a week's work experience in Sky Sports News. 
And I managed to get his email address and sent him an email literally later that evening on the Friday evening and said, thank you for your time earlier. If there's any opportunities, I'm happy to work for free, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, luckily he replied to me and gave me the opportunities of, of a week's work experience in Sky Sports News. So I had the week's work experience in Sky Sports News and again, made sure that I was really on the ball and um, showed the best of myself. And yeah, it came to the end of the week. And, and again, I reiterated to Andy, I said, oh, Andy, if there's any job opportunities that come, please could you bear me in mind? Um, I, I just love the opportunity. And, and I was so lucky. I mean, this is Friday afternoon and I think it was the following Tuesday, so only four or five days later, I got a call from uh, the second in command of Sky Sports News to say, Dougie, there's an opportunity as a, I think they called it a produ production junior at the time, and would I like it? And I just bit their hand off. And, and so that's how everything started. That's that's absolutely uh, crazy to hear. And I'd, I'd really do relate to you that the fact that I had the same mindset that if, if I can't play football professionally, because basically my football ability is little to none, uh, the next best thing is working in football and Sky Sports is the, the go-to place for a lot of journalists. And I think it's interesting to see how you put yourself out there and made yourself known and, and made the most out of every moment you spent there. And I think that's what a lot of a lot of people should do if you're looking to break into the industry. So you spent 15 years at Sky Sports. I, I remember you saying Sky Sports News. What was your... Uh, vivid memories of working for Sky Sports News and what what is the highlights from from that time? Wow, there's so much to, to, to cover, to be honest. It was fantastic. So my immediate boss was a guy called Will Green and, and, and he's still a very close friend to me now. And, and he, he was fantastic. On, on day one, he had me writing scripts and that was never in a production junior's role. The production junior's role was basically go and make coffee for the presenters and guests and make teas and and print scripts but I think I think having Will as my boss was just fantastic he became you'll hate me for saying this like a father figure um <laughs> at my time in the workplace but he, he was fantastic but he just got me learning from day one he got me writing scripts and that was a real buzz I was thinking wow I've written a script and now the presenters are reading it out on air and that, that they're my words I just it just blew me away and, and, and that, that was in the first week so yeah, there's just, just, just so many memories. I think as I developed, if we look at how things have happened technology-wise as well at the same time, when I first started, we were in an old building um, and I loved the old building and, and they're now currently Sky Sports is in an amazing state of the art. I mean, it's phenomenal. But I actually preferred the old school uh, building because it was much closer and compact and there was a real team feeling and a real camaraderie. So just just technology wise we used to have a tape deck so an old vhs and i know for maybe the younger listeners they don't know what that is but it's like a rectangle thing and you have to put it in a tape deck and you have to load it in order of the stories that were going to go out in there and and the machines kind of broken so you'd have to have scissors and hold on with a pair of scissors and put it into the tape deck it's actually if you actually think it's only God, that was only probably 13, 14 years ago, but just, just the advances in technology alongside, like everything's digitalised now, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, I just had so many memories. So I, I managed to work up my way within the production team, uh, under Will and stay in Will's production team. And we, we had a, a morning, we were a morning team, so we would have to be in at 3.30 in the morning 
to go on air at 6 a.m. And, and we would obviously get the stories and the pictures ready for 6 a.m. to go live at 6 a.m. And I absolutely loved that. And I loved that we had amazing guests that would come into the studio. Um, and, and as the years progressed at Sky, I was given the opportunity to go out and report. And I just absolutely loved that. I loved the opportunity to go and in interview some of like the world's biggest names. Um, and I just, I just love, I, I loved so much. I was at Sky Sports for a total of ten years, and I just loved so much. Particularly in the first four, five, six years, I just, I just absolutely loved every day. I have to ask, as you mentioned, some really amazing names. Uh, and has you ever been starstruck when you've done an interview? Um, to be honest, no, I, I haven't. I think, I think, and, and, and I know that might sound crazy, but. I think just because from a very young age, I was in and around a football environment, so I was getting to meet lots of people from a ridiculously young age. I don't think I ever felt starstruck. I, I was very fortunate. I managed to go to Milan when the Milan derby was on and I got to interview David Beckham in Milan and Clarence Seydorf in Milan. And that was incredible. Obviously, David Beckham's a global icon. And I think that was the closest where I thought, wow, it's David Beckham. But even, even then, I, I just think... I think just from that young age and young, like being grounded from a young age and being used to being around big names, I, I, I wasn't ever starstruck. But yeah, just, just from, some fantastic memories. Like I, I got to interview um, Venus Williams on her birthday, and that was phenomenal. This is obviously when she was at the top of the game, uh, and it was yeah, it was on her birthday, and I took her. <laughs> well, no shame in saying this. I took her a birthday cake, and uh, yeah. And we hit it off. But I think also what helped with my time at Sky was the football background. And I was fortunate that fortunate that I knew a lot of people within the game. So I was managed I managed to lean on those relationships for exclusive interviews. I managed to sit down a couple of times with Steven Gerrard and have private one-to-one -one interviews at a golf course. Um yeah, I've, I've been I've been very lucky to 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 being able to interview some top top people. Have you had any, have you had any uh, nightmare interviews over your time working at Sky Sports News? Um, I remember, I remember <laughs> obviously I'm trying to set the scene. So it's a day before a Saturday. It's Friday. I was I was sent to West Ham's training ground to interview Sam Allardyce, but it was in the press conference. There's probably I'd say 15 journalists, maybe they're ready to ask questions. Um, and we were lucky at Sky because of the, the TV angle and, and the right being the rights holder, we'd get to start the question. And I remember saying to Sam Allardyce, I remember saying, Sam, you travel to Anfield tomorrow. Um, how, how do you think you, you'll fare? And he cut straight in and said, we're, we're travelling today. <laughs> and I was like, oh, Sam, you killed me. So, yeah, so I, I think there's been like, and he meant like we're traveling today, but we're playing tomorrow. So I said, okay, Sam, you play at uh, Liverpool tomorrow, et cetera, et cetera. But no, I didn't, I didn't really have, I didn't really have too many nightmares interviewing. I, a lot of the time, I think preparation is key. Um, uh, and having a thought process, process in how you want the interview to go. And I, I also say the biggest part of an interview is actually listening. As the person interviewing, I think it's actually listening. And I think not enough importance is maybe put on that skill 
because if, if you need to listen to how someone's telling you something and what they're telling you and then actually feed off of that as opposed to having these are my set questions this is the path i want to go down but if that person gives you an amazing story or an amazing line which is the main key line to come out of the news conference you obviously want to continue that and go down that path so you have to be able to adapt and and be aware of any possibility that's a great answer and, and for a lot of sports journalism students i know they'll take that on board how do you consider the values, morals, and ethics when finding a story and obviously covering a story? Yeah, I think that I think they're huge. Um, I think they're huge. Uh, Sky, we had a big, 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 big importance on making sure that everything was ethically correct and everything was done in the right way, and, and there was processes in place to make sure that happened. Um, and you have to build trust with individuals and organisations. So I genuinely think people do trust Sky. I know in recent times um, there's been a couple of stories that maybe has lost that way. But if you think of the thousands of stories that come into Sky, and normally they're the first, we're the first to get, well, we were the first to get them. Um, I think you have to deal with them in, in, a, in, a, in a careful manner. You have to check sources because you can't, just take someone's word, what they're telling you is the truth. So you have to check, double check, triple check um, to ensure that you're putting that product to air is, is correct. But I think, I honestly think that the reason why Sky is, one of the reasons why Sky is so big is because people do trust it as a source of information. Absolutely. What would be your advice to any sport journalist student who are looking to break into the industry? At the moment, it's highly competitive. There's not really much opportunities, especially with the pandemic. So how would you advise a student who's looking to break into the industry, make an impact and obviously make themselves known by uh, employers? Well, it's a fantastic question. I think my, my big belief in life is, as, as a general rule, if, if you want something enough, you'll go and achieve it and you'll find a way to, to achieve it. But obviously from my experience, I, I was lucky to get work experience. But if you think Sky have hundreds of people a year, maybe maybe even thousands across the whole of Sky as a, as a network. Um, and once you get an opportunity, make sure you thrive on it. Because I, I, I'd see so many people in my, in my 10 years at Sky that would come in and have an amazing opportunity. And I thought, wow, you've not relished this opportunity. And, and it made me question, like, how much do you want it? Because when, when doors open, you have to walk through them in life. And I think, I think there's also, to be, to be honest, it's not, it's not a fantastically well-paid industry when you start off and, and maybe the first few years. So I would have that in your mind and, and, and see what drives you as a character. Is it financially? And there's nothing wrong for the motivation to be financial. Um, but what is the motivation or is it something you just love and, and, and that's not an element. So I think it would be eyes wide open and, and know what yourself think. I, I understand that it is super, super competitive now. I really, really think that there's, there's so many ways that you can do things, I think, to, to, get, to get those doors to open. Um, obviously, local radio, hospital radio, uh, local newspapers. and. Even if you, I think going with the angle of not being paid to begin with, doing unpaid work to begin with, I think that shows a real demonstration. If, if I'm a boss and I'm having someone in front of me saying I'm willing to work for free because I'm still at university or I've just left school or I'm at college, 
that makes me think, wow, they, they really, really do want this. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. When I was doing my journalism degree, I worked for, for three years on paid at the Wigan Evening Post Observer uh, newspaper to kind of gain experience. And I think uh, an important question would be as well, do you think it's, it's quite interesting to see that with the sport media landscape now, when you think back 10 years ago when you first started at Sky Sports, there's now job opportunities about which didn't even exist. This time five years ago, like social media managers, the emphasis on social media, other roles. I know there's some people just get paid to post Instagram uh, posts and, and develop that. So do you think it's interesting how the media lam- landscape has changed from traditional journalism to obviously the new digital era, as you've alluded to? Yeah, it's, it's actually mind-blowing. I, I know I'm, I'm only 35, but um, I'll be honest, I'm useless with technology, which is is, um, is a shame for me. But just, I just, I, I, it just, yeah, really blows my mind that how the landscape has changed from where we were such a short period of time ago to where we are now. And it completely, it keeps evolving. How people consume their news is completely different. Everything is everyone consumes their news predominantly through their tablet um, or their computer, as opposed to obviously in that period of time, everything would be television based, everything would be newspaper based. So yeah, I think there is fantastic opportunities. And maybe if I was a young journalist starting out again, I'd be trying to think what's the next big thing going to be and where is it going to go in five years time? And how can I be ahead of the curve and how can I maybe get skilled in what's coming next um that would probably be the way i would try to go i think that's really interesting i remember when i was a kid i know transfer news used to be on on tv i remember used to be able to look on teletext to see who moved where on a deadline day because i'll I'll never forget omri camera he moved to uh, west ham from wigan on loan on a deadline day and that's one that stuck out to me because a young a young jay I think I was only six or seven. His favorite players left, and you just read it on the on the TV. But but now it's all on your phone, tablets, and I think moving on now to uh, your work as an agent. How did you transition from being a Sky Sports reporter <laughs> and producer to a uh, football agent? Well, I can tell the truth now, so <laughs> that's good. So in the sense of in the in the last couple of years, whilst I was at Sky Sports, I still had a lot of friends in the game. Um, that, were, that were currently playing and they kept giving me feedback saying oh Dougie the agency world there's, there's not many there's not too many good agents with good ethics good morals who know what they're doing etc cetera, etc cetera. so you should really have a think about it and could you help me with this and can you help me with that and, and I, I was just helping out friends of mine that were still playing professionally just with with different things like contractual advice etc cetera, etc cetera. so yeah, I was maybe a little bit naughty, but in, in my time at Sky in the last couple of years, I set up a business, kept it very under the radar. Um, I, I was currently working a shift pattern of four days on and four days off. And on my four days off, I would go and watch games as well on my time off and go and see the players playing, etc., etc., just to get myself out out there and communicating with different players and thinking that this might be something that I would want to go on and do after I, if I have, if I left Sky. Um, I think it's, it was bit, it was massively important. I had like a vision of how I wanted to be as an agent. Um, 
for those that have watched Jerry Maguire, I know it's a Hollywood film and maybe a bit cliche, but I actually could resonate with with that human element. And I know I come back to the human element a lot, but there was a real human element of by doing right by the athlete. And the story of Jerry Maguire, he works for a huge sports agency. Um, and it becomes like a numbers game. And, and I'm, there's two or three football agencies in this country that are the same, where it's just, it's a scattergun approach. We're going to sign 116, 17-year-old kids at professional clubs. And we know that two or three of them will make it to the very top. And we don't really care about the rest because the money that the two or three will make us as a, as a business, it, it, we, we don't have to take as care with the rest. So mine was the polar opposite. I wanted it to be a very like boutique sports agency where I have a small crop of players, but I give them the attention and care and, and really, really look after their best interests um, in, in, in every capacity. So that was my thought process and vision for the business. And we're now six years later um, since I first started having those thoughts and, and trying to put a vision together. And, and I've still maintained that and wanted to have that day-to-day approach with my players as opposed to having 100 players and not being able to look after them properly. I think this is a a really interesting point because I know there's been a lot of talk recently in The Athletic that some some agents, there's a bit of a debate of do you view players as employees or assets? And I'd like to get your your opinion on this and and, and your your theory and philosophy about obviously how you treat a player in in terms of are are they... I don't know what I'm saying with this one, but um, how how would you focus your personal relationships with the players you work with? Well, I think I think, I think a couple of well-publicised players have, have earned fortunes during their time playing, and then haven't looked after their money properly, and then have been bankrupt, and and that petrified me. So one of my big things with all, all of my players is that they look after their money. And, and that is so important and so short. I know I know players are earning at the top of the game, not at the bottom of the game, but at the top of the game, they're earning huge numbers, but their career is so short. If you think they're earning, th- th- those contracts might be from 21 to 30, where so a nine-year period where they've got to earn as much money as possible because a lot of these guys haven't maybe got the skills where they can go on and have careers afterwards. So it's vital that they really earn as much money as they possibly can and look after it because they've got to then, if, if they're fortunate and they live to 90, they've got 60 more years to, to live. So I think, I think from every aspect, I think I've made sure that players are, I, I take massive pride in making sure that they're financially going to be secure and, and look after their money. I think, as I said earlier at the beginning of the podcast, I think the human approach, I I want to hopefully help them to become the best possible versions of themselves. Um, I think it's important that they learn to give back as well because they are an amazing opportunity and they've they've been given an amazing skill set and opportunity to to have a great lifestyle, um, especially at the top of the game. But I think it's also very, very important to make sure that they're giving back. Um, so yes, yeah, a whole it's a whole holistic approach with with the player. I, I, and I, I can't stress this enough. 
I'm super, super honest with them. So I'd seen other agents, whether at games and they're talking to their players after in, in, in the, um, in the like one of the suites afterwards and you hear the agent and inflating the player's ego and telling them things that just aren't factually true. So if I go and watch one of my players, and I think maybe because of my playing background and, and having a knowledge of the game, I could, I'll be honest with them. If I don't think they're playing well or if I think they are playing well, it's, it's always very, very honest feedback. And I think they respect me a lot more for that as opposed to just trying to blow smoke up up them. I think that's a really important way to look at things because I know a lot of players will appreciate the honest approach like you do rather than just hear things that aren't correct. And, and if, if they are hearing things that aren't correct, it doesn't give them an entitlement or an, a will to improve almost because if, if they think they're performing well every week, they probably think, well, do I need to change anything? Do I need to self-improve? Yeah, 100%. And I, I, think, I think that's yeah, such a good point. I think... I think you just have to be honest with people, and I try and I try I, I, I try and maintain that with with all aspects of my life. I think if you're super honest with people, they know exactly where they stand with you. So I do that with everything, with my negotiations, etc. But the most important thing is with my players, and I, I just yeah, I hope that they all do fantastically well on the pitch. Of course, like I want them to have amazing careers, but I, I promise you, it's as important to me that they. Are really good well-rounded individuals that's that's really nice to hear are you able to dis- disclose who you've worked with uh, over the last couple of years so, sorry jay uh, are you allowed to uh, disclose who you've worked with over the years and represented oh yeah i'll, I'll, I'll talk you through one for uh, obviously there's wigan based i looked i look after leonardo de silva lopez i've represented him since he was 15 he's now um 21 he obviously moved from Peterborough United to Wigan um, a couple of years, two years ago. Um, I think I think with Leo, this is another example of how I like to operate and how I do things. At 15, Leo, obviously incredible talent, and there was Premier League interest um, about taking him there. But from a career point of view and development point of view, my feelings and, and what I shared with Leo was that the best thing for him to do was to stay at Peterborough United because he'll have an opportunity at Peterborough. They've got a history of giving young players an opportunity, even back as far as long as the days of Simon Davis and Matthew Etherington. You've got you've got an opportunity to be in a first team squad. Whereas I think agents and players and, and, and are so quick to get to the Premier League, but then you can get lost in the under 18 system, the 23s, and never play any senior appearances. We're now six years later, Leo's 21. He's made nearly 200 senior appearances, which is a phenomenal achievement. And I said to Leo, Leo, the big moves will come. Actually get a good basis and understanding of your game here where you are at Peterborough. And I, I honestly could have made, I'm just, just divulging and being truthful, I could have made money out of Leo going to a Premier League club at 15, 16. I could have taken that opportunity then, but I knew that later down the line, those opportunities would come and he'd have a great basis. And, and I'm very lucky that that's an amazing case study that six years later, he's played nearly 200 appearances and he's obviously just gone as a club record signing to Circle Bruges in Belgium. So I think it's having, I think it's just doing right by the player. And, and, and I, I feel proud that we stuck to that belief and that it's, 
prove dividends because the players put a lot of trust in you. And then there is pressure. That that is what I take great pride in. And they listen to what I'm my thought process and why I'm going down a certain path. And they put that trust and they're young men. So you're almost having to be like a parent. There's so many different roles. You go from being a parent to a mentor, to a friend, to someone that needs to tell them to buck their ideas up. And you're playing lots and lots of different roles. And, and I think it will stand in good stead later in life if I have children, just because I would imagine that's the same as a parent. You're looking after an individual and, and they're putting their place and their trust in you. Absolutely, and that's a, a fascinating answer. I know Leo De Silva Lopez, he, he was great at Peterborough, he, he moved to Wigan, he spent a bit of time on loan at Gillingham during our time at the DW Stadium then. He moved on to Hull and obviously now he's got his uh, club record moved to Belgium. And I'd, I'd like to get a bit of a, an insight into how a transfer is completed and, and what's a process that people don't necessarily see. Well, Joe, I'll just I'll quickly say, say that because I think if Wigan fans are listening um, at home or in their cars or whatever that with Leo I think this is an interesting point that maybe people should be more aware of Leo was 19 when he moved to Wigan I think he went for a million pound transfer fee Leo was 19 at the time he hadn't passed his driving test he had never moved he'd never obviously lived away from home and as a 19 year old man he had to move I think it was 200 miles northwest to the northwest live in a house on his own for the first time couldn't drive, obviously had gone up a level from League One to the Championship. And I think he found it tough. The first month of his life, he lived in a hotel. And I know people at home would be thinking, oh, living in a hotel, come on, that, that's not tough. But but trust me, it's not glamorous living in a hotel on your own for a month. And especially as a 19-year-old boy, it, the, the novelty very, very quickly wears off after two or three days um, of being on your own. So I think, I think it was a tough move. Paul Cook was fantastic. The coaching staff were fantastic with Leo. But maybe just in how he was as a person and as a human, I think maybe that move was six or 12 months too soon for them just because of maybe the extrinsic factors around that move. Um, but 12 months later, he got the opportunity to move to Hull and, he, and he, he, he made 40, 45 appearances for Hull and, and I know they got relegated in the end, but he was, he was still the best performer, which obviously got him the move to Circle Bruce this summer. But yeah, just, just just in answer to your question with regards to a transfer, there's there's so many different angles and so many different ways a transfer can be completed and, and how they come about. Is there's, there's no one set rule. Um, I honestly, I think after three or four months of being an agent, I could have written a book, on, on, honestly, because just things that go on just blow your mind. It just, and it's hard for me to divulge a lot of that information because Football is kind of a closed shop, if you like. And I think if anyone speaks out of turn, I, th I think that would send shockwaves. And I'm not probably prepared to send shockwaves. But I honestly, I, it, even though I've been involved in the game since I was a child, even some of the things that were going on just completely blew my mind. It, it's fascinating, really. And obviously, you've been a part of quite a few deals in your time. What is the most memorable, memorable transfer you've done and and what is obviously the, the toughest part of being a football agent? Um, I think the toughest part, so I'll answer your second question first. I think the toughest part is I, I think maybe a criticism 
maybe that that may be the reason why I've done okay at it is I think I get very emotionally attached. Um, I put myself under a lot of pressure and stress because I don't take it lightly that these young men are putting their faith and trust in me. And I think that can impact from just from a personal perspective, that can impact my personal life. Like I'm super grateful. The Leo deal to Circle Brews just this, just, just recently, obviously moved two weeks ago, went on for six, seven weeks. Um, and I, I, I'm, I'm legally not allowed to go into too much detail about that, but it went on a lot longer than, than it really should have. And that's all I can really say on that. But you've got a young man putting his faith and trust in you and wanting to go down a path. And, and, and to be fair to Leo, Leo wanted the opportunity to, to go to Bruges. But I think the stress that it puts on me and then the impact that it has on my family life, like I, I just, like massive thanks to my family. I've got just an amazing family um, and, and amazing friends. And for that six or seven weeks during a transfer window, when you've got people relying on you, I honestly don't sleep. Um, I can't focus on anything else other than the work. I think it impacts my maybe relationship with my friends and family, but because they're so amazing, I think they understand, they completely understand it and are so supportive. But I think, I think people see the George Mendes of the world, the, the, the super agents, if you like, and everything's super glamorous. But from, from my perspective, it can be very, very mentally tough and, and, and draining because I, t I, I am so emotionally attached. Maybe that's something that I need to work on as a person moving forward to maybe try and remove myself a little and, and, and not to be so stressed. But if, if anyone had spent time with me over the last six or seven weeks, I apologise because <laughs> um, I've been a nightmare, to be honest. Yeah, absolutely. It's really an interesting answer. And I, I'm interested to see you mention George Mendes, uh, one of the, uh, the super agents. Obviously, what are the common misconceptions of football agents? Because I know a lot of people in, in sport hear a lot about the agents, but they never really get to hear the agents speak about it and, and their side of the story. Yeah, I think, I think I'll be completely honest with you. If you walked in, if anyone listening walked into, say, a big insurance company, and there was 500 people in the insurance company, there would be a percentage of people in that insurance company that are not very nice human beings, not good people, not people that you'd want to associate yourself with. And that's no different in, in, in the football agents world. There's a percentage of football agents that I genuinely think if they were given the right price, they'd sell their own mum. Like, and, and that's how they are as people. That is the polar opposite of how I am. But there is a percentage of people. But I think I think people from the outside and they see Mino Raiola make huge sums from the Pogba deal and they think all agencies are exactly the same. Whereas, yeah, I can earn well at the top end of the game if I do a deal and conclude a deal. But I, I promise you, I'm going through a struggle and a personal struggle to get that. But yet I'm very privileged that the rewards are there if that happens. But I still give the same sort of care to a player that gets released from a club at 16 or 18, where I... The agent isn't earning anything and literally might be spending days, week, like days on end, phoning around lots of clubs to get those players and a second opportunity and a second chance. So I think it's easy to sit at home and, and maybe I was guilty of that before I knew the industry. It's just easy to sit at home and think, God, agents this and agents that and agents the other. But there is a more balanced view and there is 
there is more to it. How does commission work when it comes to our agents? Um, commission works, I think the industry standard is 5% of the playing contract. So what the player earns over that term of the contract, you can earn, now obviously, depending on the deal, you can earn 10% of a deal. Um, and there's other ways that you can be remunerated, but the industry standard is 5% of the playing contract. And as an agent, you're paid over that period of time. So you can try to get as much of it upfront as possible, but majority of clubs will spread those payments to the agent over the, the duration of the playing contract. That's really fascinating to hear because it's often a grey area in football. Do you believe that ethics could become a core of value of agents? Because obviously we, we've seen a few cases where, as you mentioned then, quite humorously, that an agent could possibly sell his own mum if he can get the right price. Yeah, Jay, I'll, I'll, to go back a step, when, when I was at Sky Sports, I had to take, to become an agent, and to become a registered agent in England with the Football Association, I had to take a exam. And I cannot articulate enough how tough this exam was. I literally locked myself in my house for two weeks. So many questions on law, interpretations of law, international law, et cetera, et cetera. And it was one of the hardest things I've ever done. The FA used to do two dates in September and March, and people that had applied to become an agent would go and sit these exams in either September or March. Now, I was a March date, and I think there was 474 people that attended with me on, on the March date, and only 54 passed the exam, Jay. And it was super tough, so ridiculously tough. And they had that in FIFA, had that in place that you have to sit this exam. Then, 18 months later after I passed the exam, FIFA get rid of the exam. And now, today, if anyone's listening at home, you can go and become a registered agent with the Footballers Association for just £500. You don't need to sit an exam. If you pay £500 a year and you're registered, you have to pass, obviously, criminal background check and you are a licensed agent. And I think it's just, it's, it's, it's ridiculous, to be honest. I think it's opened a huge can of worms. I think it was a ridiculous decision because I knew how tough I'd work to be able to pass the exam to know what I'd be able to, to know what I'd be talking about and know what's in a contract. And you've got people now that might be friends with a player, but they've got no business background. They've got no legal background. They wouldn't even know what should be in a contract, what shouldn't be in a contract. And you've got people, and there's hundreds of them, maybe even thousands in this country that are going around and haven't, I don't believe, got a real clue of what they're doing. I think this is probably one of the problems of the agent world with this this new way of becoming an agent, because like you said beforehand, the extremely difficult test, which only a small percentage pass. So just paying £500, and I could become an agent next week if I provide them funds. So I think it's quite an interesting way to look at things. And do you think this is why there's a bit of a common misconception of, of a football agent and how they are? Yeah, 100%. And I'm not going to try and change anyone's views on anything today because I would agree there is a percentage of agents that I think are despicable and, and I, I think terrible. But I do think there is a group of us that do try to do things properly, do try to have ethics, do try to do things morally correct. And, and I think 
focusing on the good guys is always better than focusing on on, on the bad ones and i think i think that's the same in life that is the uh, the correct correct mindset to look at it i think one thing that's really intriguing me is that because you've been on both sides you've, you've been working at sky sports as a uh, producer and a reporter and obviously you've been working as an agent how much do you think the media influences uh, the agent can influence the media in terms of uh, deals and, and transfer rumors coming available to the uh, public yeah well i think i think I think agents obviously do use the media to try and push the agendas that they want to. Um, but again, I think media organisations such as Sky, as a general rule, I know there's been a couple of examples recently, but 99% of the time, again, they double check, triple check. For example, if a player, there's rumoured to be a, a offer for a player, they'll, they'll check with both clubs to make sure that what they're about to report will, will be correct. But I think it's always good to be media friendly. I try and be as open and honest with anyone. Like I've done numerous interviews with various newspapers and I just try and be open and honest as much as I possibly can. Um, Obviously, you can build relationships and I try to build relationships with anyone that I work with or anyone that I come in contact with. But and you can tell people and you can lean on people and tell things off the record and, and maybe so they're aware to give them heads up on certain things that are happening um but i think it's important to work with the media i think media is so powerful and the the messages that can be delivered i I try to work as much as possible with a select group of people that i trust to 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 help me when i when i need it thank you and and i think it's also important to address that over the last year football's changed which we've all seen with project restart covid how has covid impacted your work as an agent uh, yeah, hugely. The, 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 yeah, hugely, I would say. And I, I think this is, it's, it's, it's impacted the world. I think it's definitely worth mentioning, first and foremost, the world in general has been massively affected and, and, and been impacted by this. And it's completely unforeseen. There's, you, you can plan for so many things in life, but you can't, you couldn't, you couldn't foresee this happening. Um, Obviously, from an agent's perspective, free agents, um, players that are out of contract at the moment that are looking new for new clubs, it's very, very, very tough. Very, very, very tough. If you, if we look at League One and League Two, um, with no one, no well, crowds not coming in at any point in the country. But League One and Two, with the announcement from the government a week or so ago that crowds, the, the testing for um, the pilot tests for fans to return to stadiums has been pushed back to a date that nobody knows. Um, so obviously clubs have been hugely impacted. If you've not got money coming in and revenue coming in, it's like any business. It's, there's going to be huge problems. And, and my sympathy goes out to so many clubs. And I, I hope, I hope, my, my belief is the more privileged should always try to help the less privileged. And, and I don't want to put the whole emphasis on the Premier League because at the end of the day, they're also a business and you it's like if you've got two hundred thousand pounds to spend on the house you'll spend two hundred thousand pounds on a house and, and and the premier league clubs are obviously working to budgets with revenues that they think that they were going to get in um and and theirs theirs has been interpreted as well so i don't want to put the whole pressure on the premier league or anything like that but i would like to think at the same time if certain clubs in the premier league are paying 250 300 pound week in wages that they can look at the bigger picture and and try to help 
the lower league clubs. Thank you for the answer. And it is very interesting that the Premier League should protect lower league clubs, especially in times like this. I do agree as well that they are a business too and they can't be expected to to put up massive finances because they are in the same boat, although they are earning a lot more at the top level of the game. It, the point still stands. And I think my, my question as well is, with the, the transfer market at the moment, have you found that players are going for a, a lot below the market value compared to normal in previous years? Yeah, I, I think at some point, and, and this is just me speaking again on a human level, I think at some point it had to level off in every capacity. So I think I, I think spending will be down in every division. Obviously, the transfer window closes um, on Monday, and it'll be interesting to see the facts and figures will come out. But I would imagine spending will be down in every division. I'll be I'll be astonished if if that isn't the case, and I'd be I would say considerably down, um, maybe thirty percent if I was predicting. Um, we'll know soon enough, but. Yeah, I think I think everyone's been impacted, but I just pray like communities need the clubs and and at League One and League Two level and and even non-league level they play massive roles in massive communities and I've seen I've seen firsthand how big a role that they play in local communities and I just just hope that from from a health perspective I hope everyone health wise and I hope there's a vaccine or, or whatever needs to take place. But I just hope these clubs survive this period of time. Do you think we could see clubs going into administration very soon? Obviously, we've seen what's happened at Way Athletic. But do you think more lower league clubs will follow suit? Yeah, if, if, help, if help doesn't come, yeah, 100%. 100%. 100%. It's, uh, it's unavoidable. It's going to be unavoidable. So there needs to be some sort of process put in place or package put in place or something that that suits everyone I always my, my biggest thing with any sort of deal everyone should walk away from the table thinking they've had a fair outcome and and I hope everyone comes away from these negotiations thinking yeah we're happy to do this we're happy to accept this and, and come to a resolution because the game will be in big trouble and, and it would obviously we've had in recent times Macclesfield and Berry last season and from from a personal perspective, it just breaks my heart because I know how important these clubs are in their communities. Absolutely, I, I know a few Berry fans, and, and they say not not much recently because I know they got their first ever league game at the time of recording Saturday. And I think it it's important that people have the the football clubs in their community. Berry fans I used to know, a Saturday afternoon at three pm used to be their worst time of the week because they knew they should be at Giggley and they shouldn't be at home. They should be there supporting the football club and, and it'd be a shame to see this happen to more clubs. Macclesfield, I know they're trying to create a Phoenix club at the moment. And uh, close closely to us and, and my viewers, Wing Athletic have been in administration over the last three months. I mean, we've had a bit of a breakthrough this week with a uh, preferred bidder from Spain, uh, an agreement being reached there through the administrators. And I know you've got quite a few close ties. We, we mentioned Leo de Silva Lopez, but I know you've been involved with uh, the former Wing Athletic manager, Paul Cook. Yeah, I love, I love, I love Paul. I love Cookie. Um, I just think he's a great character. I love people in life that are big personalities and big characters and good humans. And Paul ticks all three of those boxes. I just think he's fantastic. I love being around him. Um, I've never met him before the Leo deal. I've never ever met him. Never spoken to him or anything like that. But we've we've formed a very like close relationship in the last couple of years. I just, I just think he did an amazing job with Wigan. 
Um, I was absolutely gutted for him, the fans, and and going to watch Wigan games, I became friends with people behind the scenes, and it's just a fantastic club with fantastic people. And I loved going to watch games. I loved spending time with with, with the individuals at the club, and I was just absolutely gutted with with, with what happened. I'm, I pray that the, the Spanish bid goes through. Um, but just, just with regards to Paul, I just thought he was absolutely magnificent. I was really just how he conducted himself throughout. And, and obviously I was privileged maybe to, to um, some more information at different times, being close with him. But just I just thought he was magnificent. On the, on the day when a lot of redundancies were made, and it was a day of a game just towards the end of, of last season where he was phoning around staff, and um, saying how sorry he was. I just thought that was a real, just shows magnitude of the man. What is your exact role with Paul? What do you advise him on? No, no, no. So just, yeah, Paul and I have got a close relationship. Obviously, um, he, I think emotionally, I don't want to speak out of turn, this is for Paul to say, but I think he has publicly said this, so I'm sure he won't mind. But I think I think it's got, it, it, it took a huge, huge toll on him. Having to, like Wigan were magnificent since on the on the on the field he's done a fantastic job. He obviously got you promoted, um, but but since January with the amount of players that he got in and look at the in normal times the crop of player players that if the club hadn't gone into administration would have player sales would have been probably twenty twenty five million, like phenomenal recruitment. And I just think from January onwards to go from the relegation zone to I think finishing. If they hadn't had the points deduction in twelve or thirteen, just unbelievable. And I think if if the season had continued another three or four weeks, they'd have been in the playoffs. I genuinely believe that. I just I just thought he did a fantastic job. But but since he's left Wigan, I've just helped him obviously with my media background, just um, maybe to to do that and keep him keep him involved and keep him in, in, in the game. So maybe just helped him with that, but. I think from the relationship, I probably get more out of it than he does. <laughs> I think uh, it's it's really interesting you, you mentioned the character of Paul Cook. During his time at Wigan, he, he was loved for his infectious personality. I think the fact he rang up all the stuff that got made redundant just spoke volumes. And I think I remember the most is during administration, a, a young Wigan fan sold his toys to, to raise money for the club. And he went round to his house and dropped off a Sammy Morsey shirt. I think that just emphasises what a great character he is. How would you reflect on Paul Cook's time at Wigan? Because I know there was a bit of a period in November time towards last year where a lot of fans were calling for his head. A lot of fans thought he, he should be uh, sat from his position as a, as a manager. Yeah, I, it was tough because obviously I've, I've, I've grown to be close to Paul and and... It was tough for me when, when I'd see, and I'll, I'll, I'll admit, like I'd, I'd be on Twitter and I'd see the comments and Paul Cook this and Paul Cook that, and I think that was very, very tough. I, I will say, I, I think ever since I was a child and a fan, even of Arsenal, with Arsene Wenger, they, um, some of the fans are like standing up at games and saying, out, out, Wenger out, etc., etc. I just think it's just not how I operate. I, I understand that fans might be listening to this and say, well, I pay my money, I'm entitled to this. But I think there's a class and a way of doing things. And and you can, if you do want a manager out, there's a way of achieving the same 
outcome and goal and, and showing a bit of class as opposed to as opposed to doing that. So it was tough, and that's that's not to criticise all Wigan fans, but I just think it's again just maybe looking at the wider picture. Sometimes he'd, he'd recruited a number of players last summer um, to improve improve the team. Obviously, they stayed up in that he got the club promoted in his first season from League One. Fantastic. Um, with a great style and brand of football, first season of the championship. The levels between the championship and League One are huge, trust me. You've only got to look at Hull. Hull couldn't win a game since January. I think they won once since January. Now they're top of League One, as we sit today, they're, they're top of League One. The disparity between the championship and League One is massive. So when Wigan got promoted from League One to the championship and Paul kept Wigan in the championship, that's a fantastic job, trust me, with the, with the wage budget that Wigan had compared to 10 or 12 of the clubs in the championship, that is a fantastic effort. Um, and then in the second season, I think people think, right, let's kick on. And it just took a little bit longer because it was new players and a turnaround of squad. I just think it took a little bit longer than Paul hopes. But luck does play a part. And, and, and I remember Wigan being 1-0 up at Luton, I think in the 89th minute. And Wigan couldn't, at this moment in time, Wigan couldn't, buy in a way win and then they got their one nil up in the 89th minute and I remember I was at another game and I was looking at my phone and I was thinking oh wow here we go this is their first win away from home and they conceded two late goals but people don't realise I think fans are so quick but I can't remember one of the centre halves that got injured during the game and then I think Paul was going to substitute bring on another centre half and then they've launched the ball long because they're losing one nil and, and trust me luck plays a massive part so without going into massive detail and well, there is an element of luck but I just got so happy that he stayed and he showed what a manager he was his, his record speaks for itself and, and, and the facts don't lie I think he's got the best he's got the third best record in British management over the last five or six years out of the whole of British football which I think is phenomenal and I think not only is he a serial winner everywhere he goes if you look at his cv and look at his track record not only is he a serial winner wherever he goes i just love how he is as a person like you want to be around him i can you can see i spend a lot of time with managers different managers and i'd want to play for paul when i come into the, when you come into the training ground there's a buzz there's a personality there's excitement there's camaraderie there's fun and i think he's a great personality and i'm, I'm sure that when the next opportunity comes, when the right opportunity comes, I'm sure he'll continue to be a massive success because of those things. It, it was a pleasure to have him at Wig Athletic. I know he, he spent time as a player at the football club. As a manager, his reign was, in my opinion, outstanding. In, in my lifetime, he's one of the best managers I've seen. I'll never forget the uh, FA Cup run in the season where uh, it was in League One and won it. Because to, to beat Man City and that Pep Guardiola team, I remember... Paul Cooker, I've spoke to a few of the players about this on on podcast before, and they burst out laughing when Paul Cooker was giving a bit of a team talk on how to beat Man City. You've got like Sergio Aguero, Kevin De Bruyne, all these big hitters, and a team. I know Gary Roberts was in midfield on that night. Nick Powell had to go off injured, and and Will Grigg, who'd been chasing lost causes all night, scored the winner in one of the biggest upsets in the competition's history, in my opinion, because. Wigan had no right to win that game. And I think it just shows the brilliance of Paul Cook's tactical awareness and, and managerial skills because to mastermind something like that when it's extremely unlikely. And I think it's important, really important to develop on the point you made that the team that we had could have pushed onto the playoffs. And I think this season, if administration didn't happen, I think they'd be challenging promotion automatically because... It was a young team with a lot of quality. 
And obviously, over the last few months, we've seen 16 players move on from Wigan Athletic for quite minimal fees. Yeah. As an agent point of view, I think this is quite an important insight. Do you believe that the impact COVID's had on the transfer market maybe explains why some Wigan players went far below their valuations? Well, the, the club it was just the club went into administration. So then, and players had clauses in their contracts when they got relegated because obviously not against what their ability was on the pitch, just because of the points deduction, which was completely out of the players and the staff's control. But players were then able to go for ridiculously reduced amounts of money, and, and it was a shame because without going in it, into it in too much detail, because everyone obviously knows the story. Um, I just can't, uh, with the ownership, I just can't um, understand how he only needs to get, the owner needed to get through two months more of paying, pay, paying players and finding the money. If he, if, he, if he didn't have any money to try and find the money to, to get through the next two months, and then he'd been able to sell these players for proper market values. But when you go into administration, you obviously need the money. And it's like anything, if you, if you want to buy something and... Yeah, the value might be £100, but you know you can get it for £20 because the other person needs the money. You're going to bid £20. <laughs> and that is how life operates, sadly, whichever way you look at that. But so I was just gutted because the talent they had, and obviously Robinson to Fulham, Kiefer Moore, I could go, you could go through the whole squad, obviously. And I'm gutted for Wigan fans because they've lost out on watching all these great players. But... Yeah, I just, I just think it was just a ridiculously tough situation for everyone. But hopefully there is light at the end of the tunnel and it looks like there is. Which is an absolute delight to all Wigan fans. How did you reflect on the administration and, and the process? I don't know if you've been following it closely. Jack, don't get me started on, uh, don't get me started on administrators. I just think I, I can't get my head around the concept. I think the, the bill for the administration... Uh, at Wigan that's going on at the moment, I think it's going to end up being around 2.3 million. I think it's 1.2 million for the administration fee and I think just over a million for legal fees. I just can't get my head around it. I just can't get my head around how they can... I think they went into administration on the 1st of July. Um, so we're three months... So it's three months of work and their bill is 1.1 million. I, for me, I just can't get my head around that. I just... For a club that's got no money and has had to go into administration because... Of, of the previous ownership, I just can't understand how they can justify that. But I don't want to get. I'm not sure if I'm, what I'm allowed to say. And what I'm not allowed to say. So I want to back. I just think logically, I can't. I can't understand how you can justify that amount. And 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 I, I don't think. I, I think because I've got obviously a, a background in, in stories with other clubs that have gone into administration, Portsmouth, etc. It is the worst nightmare. Fans, I don't think, realise. They realise very quickly the second the story start coming out, but don't realise when the second administrators come into the club, it's big trouble because you know that the administrators, what, what fees they're going to be charging for the club to be in administration. I just think the whole system needs reviewing and looking at. Absolutely. And I think, I don't want to stay too much on the administration and what happened. And I want to focus more on the positives now of the Spanish potential buyers. I know it's subject to EFL approval. I think now now Wigan Athletic have a proposed buyer. Do you think Wigan will be in a much better position than other clubs in in their league uh, because they will be debt free? Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, 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 hundred percent. So um, you're obviously starting from a level playing field. There's, there's no there's no debts. So so that is an advantage. But I just hope Wigan fans are patient. If the new ownership does happen, I hope Wigan fans are are patient with the new owners and. and 
do allow them time to settle in and and maybe this season's just all about just being settled and hopefully just securing a place in League One and then look to the future in forthcoming seasons. I think that's a really good point because I think often in football, there's not really much patience on, on the fans' side. We've seen with managers, people calling for managers' heads and, and players to be dropped. And I think it's important that fans do do wait. And, and it's been great to hear some of your stories, Dougie. It's been absolutely fascinating from, from working at Sky Sports to, to working as an agent. It's some insight that, I've never heard before. I've learned a lot of things today and I'm, I'm hoping the viewers have as well. I think my final question to you, and I thank you so much for your time, what would be your advice to any person wanting to become a football agent? Oof. Um, I think it's tough, 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 tough industry. Tough, very, very tough. The rewards are there, but it's tough. I think my advice would probably be I think just have your eyes wide open and I think maybe trust very few people. (laughs) That's a very interesting answer and I think it's a lot people should take on board because do you believe that a problem in in football is a bit of dishonesty? I think it's a problem in life. Yeah, yeah, just football actually, yeah, you're right. Every every stage of life. Yeah, I think think it's a problem in life. I think it's exacerbated maybe in the agent's world because the greed and the money that's there. But I think the same is, I think the same applies in any industry where there's lots of money. So it's a sad state of affairs. The only thing I could say is you can only control what you can control and I can control how I operate and I can control my morals and my integrity and my mum gave me a great piece of advice. She said, Douglas, if you can look at yourself in the mirror at night and you're happy with who you are, then you're doing something right. What a wonderful way to look at things. Jay, I must say, just I would love to say thanks for having me on because I've got a taxi waiting for me to get to a game. But I just wanted to say a huge thank you to um, Anne Foster, who's a massive Wigan fan. I became, I know Anne through her daughter, Helen, who I worked with at Sky Sports. They're all massive Wigan fans. So just um, to say thank you to Anne and... Thank you for having me on and I hope you haven't bored everyone to death. And if I have, then maybe I'll be great to listen to when people are struggling to get to sleep at night. <laughs> I'd like to echo that thanks as well to Anne. It's been it's been really great to, to speak to you today and hear your your great stories. And I think a lot of people take stuff away from this, hopefully. If not, it, it's something to watch during COVID. So it's win-win all around. <laughs> it's win-win. It's content. <laughs> Thank you. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you you so much. Thank you. Um,